Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity uh, to meet together to speak uh, about education. And uh, I pray for each uh, person in this room, Lord. I pray that your uh, message will meet them right where their need is. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be welcomed in our hearts. We want to do that, Lord, together, collectively. We want to welcome your Holy Spirit. We want to welcome your holy angels. We want uh, you to be present with us, Lord. And uh, uh, we want to recognize that you are our teacher. And I pray, Lord, that what we do uh, in this session will be exactly what you would have us talk about. And Lord, that you may be glorified in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I'll try to give a short summary uh, of the first two. And uh, I have a deep passion for Adventist education. Uh, it was in academy that I came to know the Lord Jesus, was baptized, and recognized Jesus as a friend instead of someone that wanted to get me. And uh, I, I have such a deep passion for education that I want to help change it to make it better and better and better. So if, if I speak anything critical about where Adventist education is, it's because I'm speaking about me. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm chancellor at Weimar College. Uh, my name's Randy Siebold, and I'm excited to, to be at a place where the, the mission of the institution is to march closer and closer to God's ideals. And I, and I love that. I love that about uh, uh, my position. And uh, I want to contextualize my position at Weimar, and I hope this doesn't come to a surprise to anybody that uh, works with me at Weimar, uh, but my passion is not to make Weimar a great school. That's not my passion. I want that to happen. My passion is for education to be great. I want, I want all of education to be great. I want all Adventist education to be great. Do you believe that? Is that what you want? And so I think Adventist higher education could use some schools that implement the model, and I want to help with one of those. So that's why I'm at Weimar, and hopefully we do it in such a way that doesn't alienate other schools, but actually helps them learn from the things that we've done. Um, so uh, I have a deep passion for education. So if I, uh, I'm going to talk about Adventist education, and so because I'm going to draw a distinct difference between where God wants us to be and where we are now, uh, some people might interpret that as being critical of Seventh-day Adventist edu education. And, and I just want you to know from, from just my innermost recesses of my heart, I want Adventist education to do great things. I want it to, it to reach the heights that God designed it. And I believe, I, believe that if, I believe that if I went out and talked with a bunch of Adventist leadership that it would be helpful. But I believe if I talked with a bunch of young people, it would be even more helpful. Because young people, you know one thing great about young people? 
they want to get it done. And, and they don't like excuses. Let's get the work finished. And if we need schools like this, and if I'm paying for Adventist education, then by the way, Mr. President, Mr. Chancellor, you said you're doing Adventist education, and here's Adventist education. It's written in the books. This is what she says. This is what we should be doing. Explain why it's not. Right? What if a bunch of young people got together and went up to their, their president and said, let's change what we're doing here because the Lord's servants said we need to be doing it differently. What would happen? That would fire me up. If a bunch of Weimar College young people came up and said, listen, we need to be doing things differently because she says so, it's like, all right, let's go. I, we're, we're on the same team, right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? So we want the same, we want the barriers to be taken down. We want the Lord's will to be done in our schools. If we do that, we'll be recognized by the world as an amazing school because they recognize they're having major problems. So um, we talked about how they're, uh, we finished off the last presentation uh, talking about uh, some, some of the uh, media that's been uh, produced now talking about how Adventist education needs to, uh, or, or a public education needs to be changed. And uh, so uh, w one thing that's been really fascinating is that uh, there is a, a real live happening changes. You know, when I first started when I graduated from my uh, doctoral program, it was in the year 2000. And in the year 2000, the internet was out, but you know, there wasn't a lot of you know, online learning stuff. It was just coming out. And some of our colleges said, you know, oh, we're behind on, on you know, distance education. And so I came back from my doctoral work and uh, actually helped, um, uh, helped to start the uh, distance education program at Andrews. And so that was one of my, one of my big jobs. And so it was a, uh, a recognition that I, I was looking for different programs. How does distance education happen? And uh, what's happened now 12 years later is we're in a, we're in a massively different world in higher education. Uh, for one thing, based on they know they need to change. You know, uh, higher education is losing funding. They, they know they need to do things differently. To run a college is a very expensive thing to do. Does anybody recognize that? Do students recognize that? It must be very expensive because we're paying a lot of money. Right? We could buy a car every year and a very nice car every year, or we could go to college. You understand what I'm saying, right? So uh, what, what I have recognized, at least for me, what, I, what used to be the future is now arrived. You ever heard of Khan Academy? Uh, it's a fascinating program. You know, I mean, this, uh, you have this uh, young guy trying to help out his nephews, I think, and uh, does some online stuff. He puts it on YouTube, and a few teachers say it, and they go, hey, this is pretty interesting. And so all of a sudden, there's a bunch of this content out there, uh, this this one teacher who's kind of got a cute sense of humor and he's a pretty smart guy and he studies a lot of stuff and, and he 
shares it in a really interesting way. And so all of these, now there's teachers that are using it and Bill Gates is given money to help him develop this. And so there's a whole back end system for schools to use and teachers to track students' progress. And I mean, it, it's, it's revolutionizing what's being done in education. And, uh, and that's, that's on the, uh, the K-12 level. Although I, I have to admit my daughter, uh, who is, uh, was 27 this summer, studying for MCAT, kept going back to Khan Academy to learn about some of the stuff she's trying to study for her, for, uh, the, the, you know, entrance into medical school. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's just not limited to, to K-12 education. Um, but you ever heard of Udacity? It's, uh, it's a, a program, and, and I, I don't want to get into a lot of details about it, but uh, it's a program that's designed to give online education or online classes. And uh, the strategy is, is that rather than take people all the way through degrees, they're taking them into these certificates and then they're connecting the, the people who take these classes and do well with employers. And so they've switched up their business model. They flipped it on its head. And so what they said is students are free and if, you, if, we, if a business wants to connect with one of our students, we charge you. So they're running a totally different business model on education. So that means you go online, you can go through their classes free. I mean, uh, MIT and Harvard and Berkeley are running, taking content from their classes and putting it online. iTunes University, right? You have, you have uh, college level content from multiple colleges, you can listen to it and as if you're right there in the class. It's all available free of charge. Um, so because of all that content uh, and, and because of a frustration for all of the people in the world that can't afford an education, University of the People, uh, the first free tuition-free online educational experience. So what they do is they get people who have retired uh, from, who have come from accredited institutions and uh, PhDs and taught for many years at different prestigious universities. And they say, now that you're retired, come teach an online class with us. We'll train you and you can help the world. And after all this time of just taking the money and doing it, they say, I'm going to do something. I'm going to make a difference. And so they're doing it. They're, they're, they're offering the academic experience online, free tuition. And if you can pay something, then they ask you to pay. And if you come from really impoverished areas, then you don't have to pay anything. And it's just a, a totally different concept. And so it's in the context of this that a, uh, a, fu uh, a futurist, that, that was looking and seeing pro projection of trends. And here's what, she was up front. She was invited to come to a, a conference and speak to the uh, presidents of accredited institutions in California and presidents and board members. Isn't that a fascinating group? And so her job was to share what is the future likely to be like in higher education? 
And one of her statements was, you won't recognize it in five years. It will be so vastly different. Look at the changes that are happening. Look at what people are going to do with this. It's going to change. Higher education as you know it will, now I don't think in five years you're not going to recognize it. I think you'll still recognize it. I don't have as much confidence that she does. But I tell you what, there, there's no question in my mind it's going to change. We're going to have new business models. It's going to be, you, you remember what newspapers were, you know, back when you would get them delivered to your door, right? And we have them going out of business now. And we're going to have higher education is going to go through a huge transformation. Because all of these you know, what could it possibly do to a higher education institution to have lectures from MIT available online? Right? Just absolutely amazing. It's, go it's going to change. Things that, that I couldn't perceive, that I couldn't understand how it was going to happen, now are happening. But what I, what, I, what I could recognize a decade ago was there, there are going to be changes. No question, there are going to be changes. Education as you know it now, let me rephrase that. Schools as you know them now are going to be vastly different in the future. No question. I, just, I, I don't think there's any question at all that's going to happen. So... Um, the one question might be, what are they going to look like? What's it going to be? And, I, and are there some of these examples? So I have a, I think this is about a three, three and a half minute clip. It might be just a hair longer than that. Um, I'll give, I'll, I'll let just a little bit of it play. And I'm going to play it through this little speaker. So if everyone could be real quiet, uh, we might be able to hear it okay. Is that? That's not good. Oh, that's what we need to do. Sorry, I plugged it in wrong. These aren't part-time after-school jobs, but school day internships that allow students to pursue their own passions in real-world learning situations. If we apply for 75, what exactly can we get done with that? The internship program is just part of a unique high school concept launched in 1997 in Providence, Rhode Island at a school called The Met. You just think about how people learn. They learn when they love something. They learn when they have a passion, when they're interested in something. Um, they learn uh, subjects aren't broken down. You, you kind of think of homeschooling. If 
if you were homeschooling your kid, you wouldn't put them in the living room for 45 minutes and then ring a bell and move them to the kitchen and study science for 45 minutes and ring a bell. You'd, you'd have them meet great people, read great books, do real stuff. And so that's how we said, let's see if we can create a school. The word passion, you know, like finding your passion, I never even heard of it until I came to the Met. You're like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm 14. So I, I didn't really know what to expect. I think everything kind of happened accidentally. Oh, look at the red cardinals. For Shandell, the happy accidents began when she met her first mentor, photographer Therese Grente. Okay, I'll uh, just let a part of that run. So what we have is, this is a high school. Did you, did you pick up, I don't know that, if, that they said that this early, that there are no grades and uh, no transcript in a traditional sense. The students uh, develop their own transcripts and uh, no tests in the school. On uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, the students meet at the school. On Tuesday and Thursday, they meet at internships. And so this is a high school for an inner city group of young people has a graduation rate, no, a college attendance rate of 90% in an inner city environment. And uh, uh, you could look it up. It's uh, available on edutopia.org. E-D-U-topia, edutopia.org. And uh, there's lots more innovative things that are happening. And that's a, that's a K-12 example. Um, and, uh, and then we gave some examples of those higher ed examples. So uh, here's, here's uh, uh, some clarity that we have. What we know is the world knows it needs to change how they do schools. This is crystal clear. Um, the last presentation, we talked about all these different perspectives and all these different types of, from learning theory to uh, business needs to uh, corporate training, they all are, are saying we need to do schools differently. School is not working the way, and they're doing something about it. They are changing schools. So my question is, if we model our schools after the world's schools, and the world knows they need to change their schools, where does that leave us? Do you see what I'm saying? So I think there's several options. One is what we could do is we could just go on with business as usual, and, and then after the world changes their schools and starts to do some things that are better, we could actually start to do things like them and continue our past history of modeling our schooling after the world schools, right? Is that one option? Is that a good desirable option? No, that just has memories of Israel again. Don't, you know what I'm saying? Um, I don't want to do what the world wants to do. I want to do what God wants to do. So, Adventist schools. Now, um, again, you know, I was at a conference office uh, talking about Adventist education, and, uh, and we were talking about how to integrate homeschool 
students into our education system. And uh, the idea was, uh, how do we take homeschooling children who clearly are inside of Adventist education, but there was a there was a there was an unclarity, but that they thought, or at least one person in in that group thought that Adventist education meant Adventist schools. And so what they felt their role was was to help schools develop and not to help children develop. Does that make sense? So what we need to be clear about is Adventist education versus Adventist schools. So let's take a look at Adventist schools. And I believe, you're, you, if you want to ask me, I believe Adventist schools are good schools. Now, have you uh, heard of any of the value genesis or cognitive genesis information? Uh, several studies have been done in value genesis talking about the, the value of where the home, the church, and the school come together. They create a, a powerful learning environment that really helps to change young people's spiritual development and their commitment to continue being a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, cognitive genesis, a more recent study, just finishing up some of the uh, outcomes they found that... Uh, in uh, academic uh, quality of Adventist schools. Just very impressive, a whole list of very, very impressive statistics that talk about how students in Adventist schools are scoring higher or have higher ability than those of the general population. Um, uh, they give an example of an eighth grade a test that was done for just eighth graders and what they did was they took the students who were new to Seventh-day Adventist education and they put them in this category and those that have been in uh, Adventist education for only uh, sixth or seventh grade in this category and uh, worked all the way up to here uh, in uh, for those that have been in Adventist education all of their lives in this uh, category here. So what they found was those students who were in Adventist education longer than those who were not scored higher. So those students who were in Adventist education for all seven years were scoring significantly higher than those students who were coming in as their first time as an eighth grader in a Seventh-day Adventist school. Yes. Uh, this was comparing the students on a, uh, uh, on a standardized test, the Iowa basic skills, Iowa test of basic skills. And what they did was they took the scores of students uh, in eighth grade and then looked at their scores from whether they were just in one year uh, or never been in Adventist education. So eighth grade was their first year in Adventist education. Um, and whether one or two, and they found these differences. The comparison group was everyone else that has taken the test. So it would be general population, uh, public schools, private schools. Within those same categories? Yes. Uh, well, as compared to the general population of all those same categories. These were all as compared to the general population. Yeah, that's where they get those numbers from. Okay. 
So uh, they also found that, uh, that some other related factors that when parents and pastors were involved, when students' lifestyle represented a, a traditional Seventh-day Adventist lifestyle, the students scored better. When they watched less television, the students scored better. When they slept more, the students scored better. Isn't that interesting? Amen. Amen. You ever heard of New Start? Hey, it's in there. All right. All right. So... In, in spite of all these really good news, enrollment in Seventh-day Adventist schools is dropping. Um, and uh, to try to help explain this and to try to help figure out what's going on, there was a book written. And uh, one of the excerpts from an uh, advertisement for this says this. Between 1980 and 2005, Seventh-day Adventist church membership in the North American division increased by 75%. Amen. In that same 25-year period, K-12 enrollment in Adventist schools dropped by nearly 25%. And what makes this actually even worse than it sounds is the, the percentage of Adventist students is lower than it was. Not just students, overall, which this is talking about, but actually Adventist students. So the question is, and this was, the, I went into uh, uh, one of my doctoral um, advisors and I said, you know, he was, he's not an Adventist, but his specialty is education reform. And I said, you know, a Adventist education needs to reform their educational system. I said, they have a significant problem. He said, oh yeah, what's that? I said, enrollment's dropping. He said, that's not a problem. I said, what do you mean? We can't run schools with low enrollments. He said, that's a symptom. What do you think? So you have to be careful. If you're involved with a Seventh-day Adventist school, if you're involved with a church and enrollment or you know, the attendance is dropping, it's probably not a problem. It's probably a symptom of a problem. So, okay, what's the problem? We need to change. What do we need to change? Um, uh, there was a book that I read which I found really fascinating. Um, uh, it, the, 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 the research design around the book was very, very good. Uh, Jim Collins is the uh, author of the book, and he, he was the research study uh, designer. And here was the research behind the book. They took um, companies that were doing very good on the stock market, and then all of a sudden somewhere they spiked. And then they compared those companies to other companies who were in the similar field at the similar time with a similar background that never made the spike and their stock prices stayed the same. And they studied both the 10 years before, the time during, and the 10 years after the spike. And they wanted to know what is different between the two companies, because clearly these other companies were good companies, but they never became great. And so the, the, the premise of the book is 
what is the uniqueness is that makes someone go here and then all of a sudden become great. And, and, and what I want to do is a very powerful introduction to the book. First sentence says this, good is the enemy of great. Okay, let me read you just uh, the first, I think it's the first paragraph. And that's one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government principally because we have good government. And we're not going to get into that discussion. <laughs> Few people attain great lives in large part because it's just so easy to settle for a good life. And now he deals with companies, which is what the whole book is about. The vast majority of companies never become great precisely because the vast majority become quite good. And that is their main problem. What do you think? It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating book. And uh, in fact, I've heard a whole series of uh, devotional thoughts built around principles that were revealed through the research of the book. You know, Ellen White talks about when you dive into something with a sincere desire for truth, you're, the, 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 the mind is brought into contact with the unseen. When we really desire for truth, you know, a lot of people who do research aren't really looking for truth. They're looking to get published. And when that happens, they're not necessarily going to find truth. So uh, good schools or great schools, uh, maybe what we need is God's schools, right? Whatever you say, Lord, we can lay, lay our decisions down. How do you want our schools to look? We want them to look this way. So the, 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 the principles that, are, that the school system of the world are based on, you remember we talked about some of these principles that we see the schools of the world based on? So the question would be, what are the principles or what should be the principles that our Seventh-day Adventist schools should base uh, our system on. And then if, we, if we're not where we need to be, where would we go to for answers? Where do you think? All right. Second Chronicles 20, 20. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. And you might be established. You shall be. Is this the word of the Lord? Do you believe the word of the Lord? Amen. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. Actually, God designed, this is so amazing when I recognize this, God designs to communicate to his world through the church. That's his design. That's his plan. God saw from heaven that he needed a special group of people with special light to reach the world. He recognized the need to happen, and that is you. It's me. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? And then what's also amazing to me is that his design to teach us 
He told the prophets, we study the prophets, and we tell the world. That's his design. When he looks at the process and it's working well, he tells the prophets, the prophets have to be faithful. The church reads the prophets and does what they say, and they're faithful. And the church reaches the world, and the world, if faithful, will come to the Lord. That's his design. That's amazing design. So we have to go to the prophets. Um, I was uh, reading a book, and uh, uh, it had something to do with vision. And then, uh, and I thought, wow, this is really amazing. Uh, this business book talks about vision. And, uh, and then I ran across this verse where there's no vision, the people perish. And I thought, wow, God talks about vision. So I went inside of scripture and did a whole, uh, you know, one of these internet searches that says, uh, give me every verse that uh, the Bible says about vision. Every verse that has the word vision in it, I want to read it. So what does it tell me? So I, I went through and I read every verse and I put each verse into a category and I said, what does this tell me? What does this tell me? And, and I, I came up with four categories that almost all of these verses fit into these four main categories. The number one top category is God supplies the vision. Don't question, if you need vision for your organization, God has it. All right? That his strategy is to share his vision with the prophets. That's his MO. Scripture tells us that when he wants to talk with his church, he typically uses the prophets to talk with his church. Does that make sense? Because he knows they'll be faithful. And uh, another thing scripture teaches us, the third one is God's visions are true. You can bank on them. He's not wrong. And uh, the third one, false visions or men's visions uh, don't work. And uh, so what we can re realize just from this study is that if we want to recognize God's system of education, we need to go to his prophets. That's where we get the right answer. So I, I was doing a study on the book Education, oddly enough, and I, I dove into the first four chapters and I started writing, I, got, I have this visual side and I try to put things into, you know, sort of this visual spatial thing and I'm, so I'm putting them in my mind into boxes and then all of a sudden the boxes start to relate to each other. And so I came up with a graphic that summarizes the first four chapters of the book Education which uh, incidentally are entitled First Principles. Very, very fascinating. So you, you want to see the graphic? I hope you say yes, because I'm planning on showing it anyway. All right. Um, number one, it's clear that God designed us and made us in the image of God. His, his first creation of man, Adam and Eve, was designed as to be in the image of God. That was, his, that was his purpose that would fulfill. This would make man happy. This would make God happy. This would be peace and joy for the universe. However, there was some bad choices, and Adam and Eve came out of the, the image of God, and 
where we sit today is in a fallen state. We are not in the image of God. There's still pieces of that vision. But God's desire is to have that image of God recreated in us and then perhaps even a little higher than the original creation. And that process we call education or redemption. In the highest sense, the work of education, the work of redemption are one. All right? So there's this strategy and plan that God has for fallen man to be put in the image of God, and that is education. Now, we have to also recognize that there is a false picture, a something that is designed to lead to worldly success, but we recognize now even the world doesn't like it, right? So why would we design something after a system that really doesn't like what it's doing anyway? You following me? Why, why don't we just do what God says and make that happen? Okay, so let's take a look at Jesus' methods uh, on page 20. The system of education instituted at the beginning of the world was to be a model for man throughout all after time. God put, Jesus when he created, put Adam and Eve in the perfect school. As an illustration of its principles, a model school was established in Eden, the home of our first parents. The Garden of Eden was the schoolroom. How about that for a schoolroom? All right. Nature was the lesson book. The creator himself was the instructor. And the parents of the human family were the students. I like this. Parents were the students. Amen. You know, when you have kids, you just start a whole new learning curve, right? All right. On page 17, there's a little quote that I'm going to read to you. And inside of the quote, it says, this power. Okay? I'm going to put the quote right on the bottom of the screen here. Inside it says, this power. And what she says by this power, if you go up earlier in the quote or in, in the page, it says, this power, and she says, individuality, the power to think and do, that everyone created in the image of God has, has a power akin to that of the creator, individuality, the power to think and to do. Now, here's the quote. Sound familiar? It's the work of true education to develop this power, to train the youth to be thinkers and not mere reflectors, of other men's thought. By the way, just a, a little casual note, most people misquote this. Did you know that? Because they, they make thoughts plural and they make men singular. I don't know why. Maybe it reads a little differently. Reflectors of other men, men's thoughts, they say. Anyway, um, okay. So, uh, now, what we recognize is individuality, the power to think and do. We're going to come back to that. Okay? Uh, on page 230, she says this. For ages, education has had to do chiefly with the memory. Now, by the way, can you remember back, those of you who are here, with the comparison of education versus school, right? Focused in only on the mental component instead of mind, body, spirit, and then of the mental component, only a small fraction 
which is memory, which was focused on. For ages, education has had to do chiefly with the memory. This faculty has been taxed to the utmost, while the other mental powers have not been correspondingly developed. Students have spent their time laboriously crowding the mind with knowledge very little of which could be utilized. The mind, thus burdened with that which it cannot digest and assimilate, is weakened. What she's telling you is if you have an education that's focused primarily on memorization, that that includes your, this is primarily your method of being educated, that it will actually weaken the mind rather than strengthen it. It becomes incapable of vigorous self-reliant effort. What happens is the student all of a sudden recognizes that their job isn't to think, it's to memorize what others have written. And it becomes incapable of vigorous self-reliant effort and is content to depend on the judgment and perception of others. Now, let me ask in these last days, what do we need? We need thinkers. We need people who will stand for their conviction when everyone else around them is saying, hello, look around you. And you say, you know what I'm looking at? I'm looking at the word. Isn't that true? And how do we do that unless we have a system of school that is not, clearly not based on memory? New York State Teacher of the Year, when I read this, I, I had to put this slide in here. Uh, and he starts to talk about how the the ideas of the whole national curriculum of school, schooling, oh, sorry about that, were designed as exactly if someone had set out to prevent children from learning. He, he was looking at the same principles we were looking at, and he recognized that schooling was not designed to optimize learning, not designed to... to to, to develop the whole mind, but just a portion of it. Not, not, developed, developed, the, uh, not developed to de to develop. Not designed to develop, is that better? Not designed to develop the body, the mind, and the spirit, but just a small fraction thereof. And the sentence continues. Oh, I, I have a bad transition on that. Sorry about that. Okay, I'm just going to keep going here. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Memorize this one. All right. Okay, so here it is. It were designed exactly as if someone had set out to prevent children from learning how to think and act and to con uh, coax them into addiction and dependent behavior. So here, here's, what, here's what this says to me. It's almost like there's some diabolical plot as if someone wanted to sabotage the education of the children in the United States. And then, even better, from this diabolical perspective, to sabotage the church and to have the church follow that same strategy. In the uh, sixth volume of the Testimonies, page 127, I ran across this quote. Satan has used the most ingenious methods 
to weave his plans and principles into the systems of education and thus gain a stronghold on the minds of children and youth. Can you see that playing out in this? That, that it, it's, it's as if someone had, had actually set out to help our students learn not to think and act. Okay. Uh, I've been talking for a while, and I have a little test for you. It's a memory test for you. Are you ready? Is anyone getting nervous? Oh, no. All right. I'm going to give you five two-digit numbers, and I'm going to ask you to recall these five two-digit numbers in a random order. Okay? You following what I just said? Five numbers. I'm not going to put them up on here, so you're going to have to do it totally by your ears, okay? So here's the five numbers. You ready? And don't write them down. Okay, put that pen down. All right. All right, here you go. First number, 21. Second number, 22. Third number, 23. Fourth number, 24. Fifth number, 25. All right. Which one was the third number? 23. Very good. All right. Uh, fourth number. First number. Fifth number. 20, uh, 22. Uh, second number. What, what do you, you guys are amazing. I just gave you five numbers, and you picked them up just randomly, just like that. It was absolutely amazing. Do you think that was amazing? No. Why not? Because they, they were in order. That was easy. You know, when you understand how things relate to each other, everything's easy. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like when you get God, you get life. It's almost like when you understand who God is, and that you understand his principles, that all of a sudden, everything in life becomes easier. And you look smarter. Because if someone didn't know the pattern, they would think this whole group is above average, don't you say? They would go, this is amazing. If they didn't know the pattern, they would say, this is an amazing group. They all knew it. You would look amazing. And of course, you would be amazing. You know, um, uh, my time is up. What do I do now? Do I keep going? Uh, let me say that, uh, uh, you know, my, again, my desire is to strengthen and improve Adventist education. I believe God has a deep desire to do this, and I think he wants to do it. But I think we are like Israel and we look around us and we can't imagine how to do this. And when we look at and when we're impressed that we need to make changes, some of us who are the reality people, we see nothing but barriers. But what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And those people are really helpful in the process of, of actually making it occur. At the same time, we need to recognize that that God has a deep desire 
for this to happen. And uh, I pray that as you go through, that you will not keep this to yourselves. Otherwise, it's very likely that you will experience intellectual evaporation. And that when you go forth from here and you think this is an amazing concept that something needs to change, it will be very likely that within a day or two or a week, and then all of a sudden you forgot all about it, unless you do something about it. Because I'm using the exact method to give you awareness only. I'm not using a method of walking around with you. We're not using that method. You right? You understand? The very thing that I told you not to do, I'm doing. The problem is, is that we don't have enough time to do the thing that it really takes to develop knowledge. So we can't do that. But what I can do is share this with you and you will gain awareness knowledge. But awareness knowledge doesn't stick well unless you apply it and teach it to someone else. So if this has been valuable for you, I pray that you would make a decision now to think and ask the Lord who you could share this with. That you get a hold of the slides, uh, the audio verse, you go through it with someone, and you figure out what the Lord has in store for you to be able to apply this to your life and, and to those you love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for your wisdom that we don't have to rely on the world around us for solutions because they're frustrated with the schooling that they have. And Lord, we, we have been given a glimpse of a higher calling for Adventist education. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to know what to do. Not to be destructive and go and say, hey, you're not doing it right. Lord, I know that's not your methods. But Lord, we want to join together in unity, in evidence of your spirit, and move forward step by step closer to the ideal you have for us. May we, with all of our heart, uh, recognize what part you would have us play. Lord, I thank you for the burden you've placed on me because it's a good burden. It feels good. At the same time, Lord, I look around and it's very frustrating. I pray, Lord, that others would share in that vision that is your vision for what Adventist education can be and should be and by your grace will be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.